Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Grace and peace to you. Um, we are continuing our series on the church community. Talking about this morning, the topic of, as you can tell in those first four verses, acceptance. That is, how as brothers and sisters in the family of God, you and I are to accept one another, despite all our difficulties that we might have with one another, and despite all the differences that we might have with one another. Now, if you have been in the church for more than, say, a couple weeks, you know that church community is hard. Just like any other human relationship, be it a husband and wife or a family or extended family or the workplace or wherever, the church is also full of disappointment, relationally speaking, and it's full of frustration, relationally speaking. And why? Well, of course, because people are people. We all bring our baggage into the community. Now, rather than putting in the hard relational work to be at one with one another, it's a lot easier to just check out. And this morning, what I want to encourage you to do is not to do that, not to check out. Now, not because everyone in the church is so lovable, but for the sake of the gospel. You know, our unity as brothers and sisters in the family of God is what Jesus Christ died and rose again to achieve. And so I want to encourage you, despite all the relational dysfunction that we find sometimes in the church, to hang in because the church remains central to the plan of salvation, as we'll see. Our community has an important role to play, and you have an important role to play within the community. Now, I want to show you that this morning by making four points. The first one, sort of setting the tone about the nature of the church, and then three others about how to go about putting that into practice, okay? So let's begin first with the nature of the church. And this first point is that the nature of the church is about unity without uniformity. We'll be looking at those first three verses there. It's about unity without uniformity. Now, a community of uniformity, or, or maybe a better word is conformity, is when everyone, regardless of their background, regardless of their personality, is pressed into the same cookie-cutter mold. In that type of community, there's no room for genuine difference. Everyone has to have the same opinions about all the important matters. Everyone has to have the same tastes, and everyone has to have the same outlook on everything. Otherwise, you're out. Now, this type of uniformity or conformity is what our culture specializes in as it becomes more polarized on the issues. And of course, it runs on both sides of the political ideological spectrum. It's called cancel culture. Either you are in total agreement with our group and the way that we do things, or you're labeled, you're shunned, and you're sent packing. So in our deeply conformist and deeply polarized culture, the church family 
has the opportunity to be something deeply refreshing. That is, to be a unified community, but also a community of genuine difference. And that's the Apostle's vision as we see it laid out here in Romans chapters 14 and 15. He's laying the groundwork for a church community that can tolerate genuine difference and even disagreement without it destroying unity, without it causing the splintering of the church and the fracturing into different groups. Now imagine that vision in our day. A community, a group of people that can get along not merely as tenants in an apartment complex who just happen to be in the same place but otherwise have no relationship, but rather as brothers and sisters in the same household. Now, brothers and sisters disagree. Brothers and sisters often more than disagree, but in ideal circumstances, they work it out. And that's the call, and that's the vision that the Apostle Paul has for the church. So let's take a look at that. Now, at the heart of his argument is acceptance, as we've said. If you look at chapter 14, verse 1, it pops up there at the beginning. Just the first phrase, he says, Now accept the one who is weak in the faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. And then again, it appears as Paul closes out his argument in chapter 15, verse 7, he says, Accept one another just as Christ accepted us. So he rounds out his argument with acceptance. And again, what Paul is after is unity without uniformity acceptance without total agreement on everything. And so rather than pressing everyone in the church into the same cookie-cutter mold, Paul makes room for a variety of opinions and for a variety of outlooks. Now the question is why? Well, it's because this unity in diversity is at the very heart of what the church is. The church is not made up of one type of people. That is, a people defined by their ethnic background, a people defined by their economic background or their gender or whatever. Rather, the church community is open to all people, no matter where they come from, so long as they confess Jesus as Lord. That is, our unity as a church is in the gospel, and apart from that, There's nothing else that we have to share in common. So long as we are sharing in the gospel, those other things, there can be genuine difference and disagreement. For instance, there was a recent study done kind of looking at what a church would have been in Paul's time. Now, they didn't have buildings like we do. They had houses. And so typically... The house would be a larger estate, right, and where they could fit all the people from the church. Anyway, this is an approximate makeup of what one of Paul's churches might have looked like. So first you have a craft worker in whose house the church meets, along with his wife, his children, a few male slaves, a female domestic slave to help take care of things around the property, and then a dependent relative. Now along with them, You would likely have some tenants who are also renting rooms out on the property with their families and their slaves as well. You would also have converts 
in the church from the Jewish synagogue. You would have both Jews and non-Jews joining you. There would probably also be a couple of slaves whose masters didn't attend, who came from different households. And then, in addition to that, you might also have a few migrant workers who are wandering into Rome and who are renting a few small rooms in the house for a season. So a typical church that uh, the Apostle Paul would have started would have been composed of men and women. It would have been composed of citizens who had rights um, within the establishment, within the community, and then you had slaves who were literally owned. You had Jews who couldn't be any more different than the Gentiles in the church. You had elites, maybe like Lydia in Philippi, and then you had uh, literally people off the street. In the church, you had people from all sorts of moral backgrounds and different walks of life. Now, do you think in any of Paul's churches, they would have just got along very easily? The answer is obviously no. The gospel brings different people together into one community and then expects them to get along. It expects them to work it out. As Paul will say toward the end of his argument, chapter 15, verse 6, to glorify God with one voice. That's the vision. And so for the apostle, it's not about getting along for the sake of getting along. It's about the gospel. His vision of the church community, unity without uniformity, is supported by theological underpinnings. And we can get to the heart of his argument by cutting out some of the historical details and just combining a few verses. So look what he says in verse 1. Now, accept the one, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions, and then... Uh, move all the way to the end of verse 3, for God has accepted, accepted him. So he says, accept this one because God has accepted him. So here's the reason we're not to have outright uniformity in the church. It's because God accepts those who are unacceptable to us. The reason everyone's not to be pressed into the same cookie-cutter mold is because God accepts those who are unacceptable to us to us. Now we'll come to the exact details later, but the Roman church to whom Paul is writing was going through a rather serious conflict. It had split into two groups, and the two could not accept one another. Right? They could not live at peace with one another because of the profound difference of opinion. One group was full of contempt, and the other group was full of judgment. See verse 3. And what the Apostle Paul does is challenge their lack of acceptance for one another by appealing to God's greater acceptance of them. So he literally says to them, you ought to accept your brother and sister, that one or those, that group, whatever, whom you have profound disagreement with, you should accept them. Why? Because God has accepted them. In other words, we cannot exclude anyone from our church family that God has not excluded, regardless of how disagreeable or offensive we might find their opinions. God's acceptance is the basis on which brothers and sisters, despite their real differences, are to accept one another. 
right? As the saying goes, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. Now, I will also add that what Paul is talking about here are opinions, or if you have the NIV, disputable matters. He's not saying we can agree to disagree on the doctrine of the Trinity. He's not saying we can agree to disagree on the nature of salvation. It's not one of those first-order issues, nor are we talking about second-order issues, things such as baptism or the Lord's Supper, or our views about Scripture, or so on and so forth. He's talking about third-order issues, which what we could call are disputable matters. We'll talk a little bit more about what those are in just a moment. But this is where the gospel, that's God's acceptance of those we find acceptable, becomes rather inconvenient for us, and it presents a strong challenge to our community. And it leads us to ask, okay, what is the basis on which God accepts us? on which God accepts you into his fellowship. Because whatever that basis is, it's the same basis on which we must accept one another. Meaning, we can't have one standard and God have another. Whatever God's standard is, his standard of acceptance must be our standard of acceptance. So to answer Paul's question, or the question that we're raising, we have to rewind Paul's argument all the way back to chapter 3. And I just want to summarize it for you to get a feel for what he's saying. In chapter 3, verse 22, he ends that verse by saying, There is no distinction. There is no distinction. Meaning, humanity is not split up into different groups in the eyes of God. The group of people with the right opinion, the right opinions, the group of people with the wrong opinions, so on and so forth. Rather, what he's saying is that in God's eyes, everyone stands on the same ground. And what is that ground? Well, you continue from verse 22 to verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no distinction in God's eyes. Why? Because all have sinned. In other words, God doesn't see white or black, liberal or conservative, rich or poor, because there is no distinction. Rather, what he sees, to put it bluntly, are sinners. There's one class, and we're all lumped into that one group. And so, on what basis does God accept unacceptable sinners into his fellowship? Well, certainly, it's not on the basis of our correct opinions. It's not on the basis of our right viewpoints, but solely on the basis of his grace. Paul continues. Now look at verse 24 being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Being justified as a gift. God's acceptance to you and to me, despite all of our silliness, is a gift. It's free. It's not earned or not merited in any way. It's ours on no other basis than the death and resurrection of Jesus. So on the basis in which God accepts us into his fellowship, that's grace, that's the same basis which we must accept one another. So God accepts both you and I, despite all our wrong-headed and our false opinions. He accepts us. And from his perspective, we're all completely wrong when it comes to those things. And yet he welcomes us in the grace of Christ 
And he expects us, on the basis of that grace, to do the same for one another. We cannot refuse someone whom he has accepted. No matter how disagreeable or worthy of contempt we find their opinions. So returning to something I said earlier, God accepts those who are unacceptable to us. And the freeness of God's grace creates a community of profound difference. It pulls in people from all sorts of cultures with their own different way of looking at things, all different ethnicities, statuses, generations, and it makes them one. It makes them brothers and sisters. And it has to be this way because Jesus is not the Lord of merely one group. He's the Lord of everyone. He is not merely the Lord over Jews, but he's also the Lord of Gentiles. He's not merely Lord over the rich. He's Lord over the poor. He's not merely Lord over some viewpoints, but he's Lord over all viewpoints. And that's why when we think about the implications of this, it's really tragic that we have churches that are for sort of different types of people. You know, you have a church that is really welcoming to the young, but is very inhospitable to the old, or vice versa. And sometimes they literally position themselves that way. Or a church that is, uh, you know, for the hipsters, but not the cowboys, or the cowboys, but not the hipsters. A church that's for the educated, but not the uneducated. All those things are really tragic because our unity is not based in any of those things. We don't gather as a church because we're all of the same age or because we're all of the same station of life or we all view certain matters the same way. No, we're united together as a church, as a family, because of the gospel. That's why we're one. And so the call upon the church community is to have that unity in the gospel and then not uniformity on everything else, to be able to tolerate genuine difference. Because if you go further on in the Apostle Paul's argument here and you look at from verses 8 to verses 12, he says the whole point of all this, Jesus' death and resurrection, is to bring Jews and Gentiles together. Not just to have a people, the people of God be one people, but everybody. And if that's the case, and we're not just going to be one sort of isolated group, but a church that incorporates everybody, we have to learn to tolerate genuine difference. So it's unity in the gospel without uniformity. Okay, now that we know what the nature of the church is, at least in this regard, let's talk about how we can put this into practice. Okay, and, and, and I want to give you three things. The first one is that we need to recognize the lordship of Jesus. And we'll be looking at verses 4 through 12 quickly. So the gospel requires that the church community be unified without being uniform. It's not for one type of people, but for everyone, regardless of their background. Therefore, the church is to put that on display. It's to be a, div a diverse and cosmopolitan community united in Jesus. Now, that's a wonderful vision, but it's easier said than done. And I really think it's a wonderful division considering all the failures of American society, right? Where we want to be a multicultural society, but we're failing on many accounts, right? Where the church, that's what it's supposed to be. But it's easier said than done. When we descend from those theological ideals 
to the concrete community of the church, it's very challenging, especially when the church is made up of different kinds of people as it should be. The more opinions and the more viewpoints that come into the church, the more opportunity there is for combustion. Now, how can this be done? How can we be unified? Well, the apostle gives us three principles, and the first comes to us here, as I said, in verses 4 through 12. A diverse church can be unified by recognizing the lordship of Jesus. Now, Paul's immediate concern in Rome is to get these brothers and sisters to stop despising one another and judging one another. Remember, there's a sharp disagreement of opinion in the church about foods and about days. There are some people in the church who abstain from certain foods because they regard them as unclean. And there is also the same group in the church who esteem certain days above others. So you could imagine if you were a Jew all your life and you became a Christian, suddenly there's this expectation to drop all the old food laws. That would be really hard for you to do because that would be ingrained in your nature. Or say you were a pagan convert, and all your life you worshipped at the temples. You did all kinds of evil things in the, in the pagan festivals, and now, you know, they're saying, you could eat everything. And you're, and you're thinking, no, I don't want to participate in any of that. It's unclean. So there's groups for reasons of conscience that separate from those things, and they don't eat certain foods, and they esteem certain days above others. Now, Paul calls this group a not very flattering term. He calls them the weak. And then there's another group, the strong, and these are those who have the freedom to eat anything, and they treat all days alike. And now, again, those might seem like trivial differences to us, right? We don't really disagree about what foods we could eat and not eat, and hardly are we ever in disagreement about days. But not to them. This was a serious issue in the church. And it, read the, it led those who were strong, who could do whatever, eat whatever they wanted. It, it led them to look upon the weak, the apostle Paul says, with contempt, verse 3. And it led the weak to judge the strong, again, verse 3. So you can imagine the strong looking down upon the weak, sort of poking fun or ridiculing their more cautious mindset. And you can equally as well imagine um, the weak passing judgment on the strong because they think they're sinning in all their liberality. And so there's great conflict in the church because there's different of opinions and ultimately different degrees of faith. Now, what I wanted to do was leave this on the abstract level by sort of giving you a few principles for unity and then calling it a day. But I think in our church community, we need to feel sort of the emotional tension of this passage. Because when Paul is writing this and sending this letter to Rome, things are not sort of, okay, it's all good and and you have yours and I'll have mine. The groups are in conflict with one another. The emotional temperature is high. And so putting ourselves in that mind frame is going to help us to sort of hear with more clarity what the Apostle Paul is saying. Because it's just a tad bit too easy to stay um, in the bygone era of the first century. So let's ask the question, what would count as disputable matters in our day? What are the things that would have the potential to sort of burst into conflict? Well, how about something 
It's going to get just a tad bit uncomfortable, so hang tight. How about something like yoga? It's not too uncomfortable, but there's some Christians who believe that it's sinful. Yoga is sinful because it's bound up with the Hindu religion. That's where it came from. So if you're going to do that, you're sinning. I remember someone at a former church who had a little pamphlet proselytizing and saying to everybody, like, don't do this, it's wrong, you shouldn't, especially if it's getting popular. Or how about certain holidays, right? There are certain holidays for their associations that Christians say, I'm not going to participate in that, which is fine. But then there are some who take that to the next degree and they'll judge their brothers and sisters because of that. You're sinning because you're participating in such and such a thing, right? Or how about something, let's turn it up another notch, how about something like vaccines? During the pandemic, there were many people making theological justifications for their position, meaning it wasn't a matter of opinion, it was a matter of obedience to God. You must do it or you must not do it. Or how about things maybe like drinking or smoking or going to the bar? Again, there are high temperatures on these things. Or what about maybe the most controversial of all political matters? How one votes, their stance on gun control or the economy or whatever. Disagreement on these matters in a church that's not seeking to be uniform but to be unified in the gospel is bound to be sharp. But it's important to notice that when it comes to these disputable matters or opinions, as the Apostle Paul calls them, he's not so concerned with settling the debate. He's more concerned with getting the members of the church to stop judging one another. Because ultimately, these opinions are secondary And there's something much more important in the church, and we'll see that in just a moment. Now, that doesn't mean there can't be conversation and healthy dialogue about what is good and wise for Christians. We're not in any way trying to shut that down. Rather, what it means is that before that dialogue can happen, brothers and sisters need to put down their weapons. And so how does the Apostle Paul accomplish this? by reminding both groups of the lordship of Jesus. And this is expressed in three ways in our passage. First, it means that you're not the master of your brother and sister. Look at verse 4. Paul says, Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for for the Lord, rather, is able to make him stand. It's a vivid metaphor. A slave who is standing judgment on judgment before his master for something that he did or whatever. And then there's another person, in this case another slave, coming in and interrupting the proceedings, interrupting the trial. And the point in Paul's uh, illustration, who are you to judge the servant of another, is that at the end of the day, settling these matters, these disputable matters, is not up to us. It's not something to be settled between the slaves, but the Lord. Therefore, he says, we need to show appropriate humility and remember our place as fellow slaves. Because such issues of opinion, of dispute, lie wholly with the Lord. And it was in order that he, ha- he might have such rights and claims over individuals that he died and rose again. So he says, you're not... The one you're judging, you're not his master. 
And the second way Paul says, is, is, uh, gets to this is talking about motives. What matters is not so much what a person does or does not eat, or what stance they have on this or that opinion, but that they are serving the Lord while they're doing it. Paul doesn't come down in favor on one side or the other. I mean, he expresses his view. He's pretty clear about where he stands. But he's not tried to settle the debate. He says, look at verse 5, each one, or rather each, must be convinced in his own mind. And again, verse 22 of chapter 14, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. That is, he makes space for diversity of opinion in practice so long as the motivation is right, because that's what matters. So listen, if your brother is not going to eat, don't judge him, because he's serving the Lord. He's giving thanks to God in his act. Let him be, because you know why? That's what matters. So Paul's saying, listen, Brothers and sisters can disagree and both be right. Because that means because what it means to be right is to be accepted by God. So if the motivation is right and it's done for the glory of God, no one should meddle with the faith of their brother and sister but tolerate it in love. Again, because Jesus didn't die for foods and opinions. He died, Paul says verse 9 that he might be lord of both the living and the dead. Now, the third way this is expressed, Jesus' lordship, is a reminder that each one of us is going to be judged. Look at verses 10 and 11. Why do you judge your brother? Then he continues, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. That is, he's basically taking our authority to judge away. Neither group has any right to pass judgment because each one must answer to God for themselves and not another. God's judgment tempers our judgment. Now, I will just say as a quick caveat, there are times where we need to judge. When disputes are not about first or third or second order issues, but when they're about first order issues. There's times where we need to say that, a, that stance you have is wrong. That moral behavior is wrong, and we have to make a distinction. But not necessarily on these opinions. So in short, what the apostle is saying here is that judgment ceases when we understand that Jesus is master over the people or the person that we're judging. That person belongs to him and not to us. We're fellow slaves, and therefore we have no right to judge someone else's servant. And so a good dose of humility brings the temperature down in the church community, and that's Paul's first goal, just to kind of get everyone... Um, uh, from, from taking each other out. Okay, so the first one pertains to judgment, the second thing, now, or the first thing. And the second thing is, uh, the point is this, that to keep unity, we need to keep the main thing the main thing. So having brought down the temperature, he turns, Paul does, to more constructive proposals. Um, and again, he says, the goal here is to keep the main thing the main thing. It's when our opinions become more than opinions, when we lose focus of the real purpose of the church community, that's when things can turn ugly. And so the Apostle Paul reminds us about what the kingdom is about. Look at verse 17. He says, The kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
It's not about these matters you're disputing over, but it's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So let me translate this to help make sense of what Paul's saying into our context. So we got a book club at CBC. Now imagine at that book club, um, we chose to read Harry Potter. I don't think we ever would, but let's say we did. Um, and I'll use that example, Harry Potter, because back, you know, about 20 years ago, it was a rather contentious issue in the church. So say someone in the book club had a serious problem with that choice, and their conscience was actually offended, right? And I'm not making light of this. I'm trying to be serious about it. Their conscience was offended because of the stuff about magic and wizards and all that other stuff, and, 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 and they couldn't go there. So how should we handle this situation as a book club and as a church? Well, one way to handle it might be to simply insist on our freedom to read Harry Potter by dismissing the concerns of our brothers and sisters as being irrational or legalistic, right? You know, it's, it's just a book, or, you know, it's that, we're not reading theology, or I don't know, whatever argument you might make. And so the goal is, like, chill out. Is that the right way? Is that the right response? Well, not according to the Apostle Paul. He would counsel us not to assert our freedom to read Harry Potter, because, big surprise, the kingdom of God is not about reading books. It's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, what he's saying is that the kingdom of God is not about us insisting on our own freedoms or pushing our opinions no matter the cost. He says the kingdom of God is about right relationships in the church community, that we would be at peace with one another, that we'd receive one another with joy, and that we would have a community of righteousness. It's not about those things, those disputable matters. So in theory, this business of self-sacrifice for the good of the community, it sounds quite romantic, but in practice, it's quite hard. Now imagine, put yourself in the Roman church for a minute, and the apostle is asking you, who are strong in your faith, who can eat anything that you'd like, to stop eating meat when the church gathers for its meal or in each other's homes. Just give it up. Are you not going to feel a little bent out of shape when he says that? A little peeved with your weaker brothers and sisters and the scruples of their conscience? Are you not going to be a little tempted to despise them? Just let me eat in peace and you can have your vegetables. That's how I would respond. I don't eat vegetables. I only eat meat, and I would be offended. There's <laughs> so no way getting around it. <laughs> I'm sure you would feel that way. And what Paul is saying is that there is a way of insisting on our right and our freedoms that adds up to losing our grip on what the kingdom of God is all about. Because the kingdom of God is not all about our rights and our freedoms, but the love of the brethren. That's more important. And so when you prioritize that, then you can learn to live at peace. You can take your opinions and say, okay, you know what? There's more important things. And it's that I love my brother and sister and that we live at peace with one another. Not that I get my way or I prove my point. So it's hard to maintain unity without uniformity. How can it be done? One keeping the main thing the main thing, in this case, being clear about the nature of the kingdom, and two, recognizing the preciousness of your brother and sister. Notice what Paul says, verse 15. 
If because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Again, our opinions, are these disputable matters, are far less important than Christ's work in my brothers' and sisters' lives. That person that I'm tempted to judge or to despise for whatever reason is precious to God in an extraordinary way. That person is not a random stranger online who I can fire off comments at. They're not an ideological opponent. But there's someone for whom Christ died, someone whom he loves deeply. And so Christ has given us freedom, but not to destroy his work in our brothers' and sisters' lives. At that point, our freedom has reached its limit. So what does Paul say? Look at verse 22. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. So in other words, do you approve of something? Is it a deep conviction in your heart? Good. And he says, keep it to yourself. The apostle doesn't want us condemning ourselves in what we approve, that is, asserting our opinions at the expense of someone else's faith. Don't condemn yourself in what you approve. Blessed is the man who does this. Therefore, verse 13, here's how he wraps it all up. Let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in our brother's way, or a brother's way. It's pretty cool. There's a play on words in the original Greek. Judge and determine, in our verse, come from the same root word. So Paul's saying something like this. Since you are so quick to judge one another, judge this, how not to stumble or harm your brother and sister. He says, you want to judge, judge this, how not to put a stumbling block in their path. Instead, our responsibility is, verse 19, to pursue the things that make for peace and for the building up of one another. So when the main thing is the main thing, the kingdom of God, peace, righteousness, and joy in the Holy Spirit, then we're able, when we have that perspective, we can sort of work things out in a way that, that works. Because I see God's work in your life, and I say, you know what, I'm not going to destroy that because of my opinion. Next, and we'll close with this. The last thing that Paul sort of directs us to is hope. And, and to me, it seems like a really strange place to end his argument. He's been talking about all these practical ways, and he says more than we've covered, way more than we've covered. But he ends with hope. I find that interesting. It's a pretty complicated argument um, from chapter, five, verse one, chapter 15, verse 1 through 6. He brings in all these different threads, but I just want to simplify things. And just by looking at how he closes with hope. It's a profound place to end his argument because, as I mentioned in the beginning, life together as a church is hard. Being a unified community is hard. I don't know anyone who's been in the church again for some time who hasn't been disappointed, who hasn't been hurt, who hasn't been wronged, and who hasn't themselves done those things to others. We disappoint others, and others disappoint us. We sin against others, and others sin against us. We are confronted with the ignorance, the carelessness, the self-righteousness of others, and they are confronted with ours. And so, like, let's not be idealist about this. Church community is messy. It's frustrating. 
and it's often discouraging. And what's easier to do, and I feel this temptation all the time, is to retreat into the safe, undemanding, and trouble-free cocoon of our own lives. I say, I'm good. I got me and the Lord and my family. I can barely handle them, and I'm just going to deal with that. And the rest of you, like, figure it out. I'm happy to come here and be with you. But this sort of community that Paul wants, I don't think so. And sometimes I think if we're honest, the church community doesn't seem to be worth it. I mean, my hunch is that some in Rome certainly felt that way, discouraged and disillusioned with their brothers and sisters. They're here for Jesus, but checked out of community. Now, what does the Apostle Paul say to this sort of dysfunctional community? And remember, he has plenty of experience with this. Look at all Paul's churches. Look at Corinth, for instance. There's all kinds of things relationally that were wrong there. Look at his own sort of relationship to these churches. Paul was an apostle, and he was treated with profound disrespect and, 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 and in some cases, just contempt. And he doesn't give up on the church community. How does he want us to respond? Not by checking out, but by renewing our hope. That is to hope in the project of the church. Ultimately, that it's not a big waste of time, but that it's something worthy of our sacrifice and our commitment. He wants us to hope in God's plan, that he's brought us together in community for a reason, and that our oftentimes dysfunctional community will be perfected in the last day. That's why Jesus died, that we might together, and all our weirdness and diversity might glorify God with one voice. And so calling us to hope, the apostle ends just in a prayer. Look at verses 15 through 6, or chapter 15, verses 5 through 6. He says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He ends with a prayer. May God grant you perseverance, because we know how much we need that in community with one another, and encouragement, because you know how much we need that as well to keep on keeping on with our brothers and sisters. So before we partake of the Lord's Supper, I just want to give you guys a moment to respond to the Word of God here. The unity that God calls us to is hard, but let's wait upon Him for strength. That He would grant us perseverance where we're ready to give up, and that He would grant us encouragement to recommit ourselves to our brothers and sisters in love. As we partake, let us be at one with one another. And so you have something to work out in your heart, now's the time to work it out. So that when we partake, we'd partake truly, as the Apostle Paul says, because this is what the Supper is about, our unity with Christ and our unity to one another. This is pleasing to God. This is the reason why Jesus died and lived again. The kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So I invite you up to come receive the elements of communion, and I'll lead us in celebration in just one moment.